Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts Four to Seven of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts Four to Seven. Four. All my later work in aeronautics is associated in my memory with the quality of Beatrice, with her incidental presence, with things she said and did, and things I thought of that had reference to her. In the spring of that year I had got to a flying machine that lacked nothing but longitudinal stability. My model flew like a bird for fifty or a hundred yards or so, and then either dived and broke its nose, or, what was commoner, reared up, slid back, and smashed its propeller. The rhythm of the pitching puzzled me. I felt it must obey some laws not yet quite clearly stated. I became, therefore, a student of theory and literature for a time. I hit upon the string of considerations that led me to what is called Ponderevo's principle, and my F.R.S., and I worked this out in three long papers. Meanwhile, I made a lot of turntable and glider models and started in upon an idea of combining gas bags and gliders. Balloon work was new to me. I had made one or two ascents in the balloon of the Aero Club before I started my gasometer and the balloon shed and gave Cawthope a couple of months with Sir Peter Rumchase. My uncle found part of the money for these developments. He was growing interested and competitive in this business because of Lord Boom's prize and the amount of reclaim involved, and it was at his request that I named my first navigable balloon Lord Roberts Alpha. Lord Roberts A. very nearly terminated all my investigations. My idea both in this and its more successful and famous younger brother, Lord Roberts B., was to utilize the idea of a contractile balloon with a rigid flat base, a balloon shaped rather like an inverted boat that should almost support the apparatus, but not quite. The gas bag was of the chambered sort used for these long forms, and not with an internal balloonette. The trouble was to make the thing contractile. This I sought to do by fixing a long, fine-meshed silk net over it that was fastened to be rolled up on two longitudinal rods. Practically, I contracted my sausage gas bag by netting it down. The ends were too complex for me to describe here, but I thought them out elaborately, and they were very carefully planned. Lord Roberts A. was furnished with a single big screw forward, and there was a rudder aft. The engine was the first one to be, so to speak, right in the plane of the gas bag. I lay immediately under the balloon on a sort of glider framework, far away from either engine or rudder, controlling them by wire pulls constructed on the principle of the well-known Bowden brake of the cyclist. But Lord Roberts A. has been pretty exhaustively figured and described in various aeronautical publications. The unforeseen defect was the badness of the work in the silk netting. It tore aft as soon as I began to contract the balloon, and the last two segments immediately bulged through the hole, exactly as an inner tube will bulge through the ruptured outer cover of a pneumatic tire, and then the sharp edge of the torn net cut the oiled silk of the distended last segment along a weak seam and burst it with a loud report. 
Up to that point, the whole thing had been going on extremely well. As a navigable balloon, and before I contracted it, the Lord Roberts A. was an unqualified success. It had run out of the shed admirably at nine or ten miles an hour or more, and although there was a gentle southwester blowing, it had gone up and turned and faced it as well as any craft of the sort I have ever seen. I lay in my customary glider position, horizontal and face downward, and the invisibility of all the machinery gave an extraordinary effect of independent levitation. Only by looking up, as it were, and turning my head back, could I see the flat aeroplane bottom of the balloon and the rapid successive passages, swish, 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 of the vans of the propeller. I made a wide circle over Lady Grove and Duffield and out towards Effingham and came back quite successfully to the starting point. Down below, in the October sunlight, were my sheds and the little group that had been summoned to witness the start their faces craned upward and most of them scrutinizing my expression through field glasses i could see carnaby and beatrice on horseback and two girls i did not know with them cothope and three or four workmen i employed my aunt and mrs levenstein who was staying with her on foot and dimock the veterinary surgeon and one or two others my shadow moved a little to the north of them like the shadow of a fish at lady grove the servants were out on the lawn and the duffield school playground swarmed with children too indifferent to aeronautics to cease their playing but in the crest hill direction the place looked extraordinarily squat and ugly from above there were knots and strings of staring workmen everywhere not one of them working but all agape but now i write it it occurs to me that perhaps it was their dinner hour it was certainly near twelve i hung for a moment or so enjoying the sore then turned about to face a clear stretch of open down let the engine out to full speed and set my rollers at work rolling in the net and so tightening the gas bags instantly the pace quickened with the diminished resistance in that moment before the bang i think i must have been really flying before the net ripped, just in the instant when my balloon was at its systole, the whole apparatus was, I am convinced, heavier than air. That, however, is a claim that has been disputed, and in any case, this sort of priority is a very trivial thing. Then came a sudden retardation, instantly followed by an inexpressibly disconcerting tilt downward of the machine. That I still recall with horror. I couldn't see what was happening at all, and I couldn't imagine. It was a mysterious, inexplicable dive. The thing, it seemed, without rhyme or reason, was kicking up its heels in the air. The bang followed immediately, and I perceived I was falling rapidly. I was too much taken by surprise to think of the proper cause of the report. I don't even know what I made of it. I was obsessed, I suppose, by that perpetual dread of the modern aeronaut, a flash between engine and balloon. Yet, obviously, I wasn't wrapped in flames. I ought to have realized instantly it wasn't that. I did, at any rate, whatever other impressions there were, release the winding of the outer net and let the balloon expand again, and that no doubt did something to break my fall. I don't remember doing that indeed all i do remember is the giddy effect upon the landscape of falling swiftly upon it down a flat spiral 
the hurried rush of fields and trees and cottages on my left shoulder and the overhung feeling as if the whole apparatus was pressing down the top of my head i didn't stop or attempt to stop the screw that was going on swish 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 all the time cowthope really knows more about the fall than i do he describes the easterly start the tilt and the appearance and bursting of a sort of bladder aft then down i swooped very swiftly but not nearly so steeply as i imagined i was doing fifteen or twenty degrees said cowthope to be exact from him it was that i learnt that i let the nets loose again and so arrested my fall he thinks i was more in control of myself than i remember but i do not see why i should have forgotten so excellent a resolution his impression is that i was really steering and trying to drop into the farthing down beaches you hit the trees he said and the whole affair stood on its nose among them and then very slowly crumpled up i saw you'd been jerked out as i thought and i didn't stay for more i rushed for my bicycle as a matter of fact it was purely accidental that i came down in the woods i am reasonably certain that i had no more control then than a thing in a parcel i remember i felt a sort of wincing now it comes as the trees rushed up to me if i remember that i should remember steering then the propeller smashed everything stopped with a jerk and i was falling into a mass of yellowing leaves and lord roberts a so it seemed to me was going back into the sky i felt twigs and things hit me in the face but i didn't feel injured at the time i clutched at things that broke tumbled through a froth of green and yellow into a shadowy world of great bark-covered arms and there snatching wildly got a grip on a fair round branch and hung i became intensely alert and clear-headed i held by that branch for a moment and then looked about me and caught at another and then found myself holding to a practicable fork i swung forward to that and got a leg around it below its junction and so was able presently to clamber down climbing very coolly and deliberately i dropped ten feet or so from the lowest branch and fell on my feet that's all right i said and stared up through the trees to see what i could of the deflated and crumpled remains that had once been lord roberts a festooned on the branches it had broken gods i said what a tumble i wiped something that trickled from my face and was shocked to see my hand covered with blood i looked at myself and saw what seemed to me an astonishing quantity of blood running down my arm and shoulder i perceived my mouth was full of blood it's a queer moment when one realizes one is hurt and perhaps badly hurt and has still to discover just how far one is hurt i explored my face carefully and found unfamiliar contours on the left side the broken end of a branch had driven right through my cheek damaging my cheek and teeth and gums and left a splinter of itself stuck like an explorer's farthest point flag in the upper maxillary that and a sprained wrist were all my damage but i bled as though i had been chopped to pieces and it seemed to me that my face had been driven in i can't describe just the horrible disgust i felt at that this blood must be stopped anyhow i said thick-headedly i wonder where there's a spider's web an odd twist for my mind to take but it was the only treatment that occurred to me 
I must have conceived some idea of going home unaided, because I was thirty yards from the tree before I dropped. Then a kind of black disk appeared in the middle of the world, and rushed out to the edge of things and blotted them out. I don't remember falling down. I fainted from excitement, disgust at my injury and loss of blood, and lay there until Cothope found me. He was the first to find me, scorching as he did over the downland turf, and making a wide course to get the Carnaby plantations at their narrowest. Then, presently, while he was trying to apply the methodical teachings of the St. John's ambulance classes to a rather abnormal case, Beatrice came galloping through the trees full tilt, with Lord Carnaby hard behind her, and she was hatless, muddy from a fall, and white as death, and cool as a cucumber too, said Cothope, turning it over in his mind as he told me. They never seem quite to have their heads, and never seem quite to lose em, said Cothope, generalizing about the sex. Also, he witnessed she acted with remarkable decision. The question was whether I should be taken to the house her stepmother occupied at Bedley Corner, the Carnaby Dower House, or down to Carnaby's place at Easting. Beatrice had no doubt in the matter, for she meant to nurse me. Carnaby didn't seem to want that to happen. She would have, if it wasn't half so far, said Cothope. She faced us out. I hate to be faced out of my opinion, so I've taken a pedometer over it since. It's exactly forty-three yards further. Lord Carnaby looked at her pretty straight, said Cothope, finishing the picture, and then he gave in. 5. But my story has made a jump from June to October, and during that time my relations with Beatrice and the countryside that was her setting had developed in many directions. She came and went, moving in an orbit for which I had no data, going to London and Paris, into Wales and Northampton, while her stepmother, on some independent system of her own, also vanished and recurred intermittently. At home they obeyed the rule of an inflexible old maid, Charlotte, and Beatrice exercised all the rights of proprietorship in Carnaby's extensive stables. Her interest in me was from the first undisguised. She found her way to my worksheds and developed rapidly, in spite of the sincere discouragement of Cothope, into a keen amateur of aeronautics. She would come sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes afoot with an Irish terrier, sometimes riding. She would come for three or four days every day, vanish for a fortnight or three weeks, return. It was not long before I came to look for her. From the first I found her immensely interesting. To me she was a new feminine type altogether. I have made it plain, I think, how limited was my knowledge of women. But she made me not simply interested in her, but in myself. She became for me something that greatly changes a man's world. How shall I put it? She became an audience. Since I've emerged from the emotional developments of the affair, I have thought it out in a hundred aspects, and it does seem to me that this way in which men and women make audiences for one another is a curiously influential force in their lives. For some, it seems an audience is a vital necessity. They seek audiences as creatures seek food. Others, again, my uncle among them, can play to an imaginary audience. I, I think, have lived and can live without one. In my adolescence I was my own audience, and my own court of honor. And to have an audience in one's mind is to play a part, 
to become self-conscious and dramatic. For many years I had been self-forgetful and scientific. I had lived for work and impersonal interests until I found scrutiny, applause, and expectation in Beatrice's eyes. Then I began to live for the effect I imagined I made upon her, to make that very soon the principal value in my life. I played to her. I did things for the look of them. I began to dream more and more of beautiful situations and fine poses and groupings with her and for her. I put these things down because they puzzle me. I think I was in love with Beatrice, as being in love is usually understood. But it was quite a different state altogether from my passionate hunger for Marion, or my keen, sensuous desire for, and pleasure in, Effie. These were selfish, sincere things, fundamental and instinctive, as sincere as the leap of a tiger. But until matters drew to a crisis with Beatrice, there was an immense imaginative insurgence of a quite different quality. I am setting down here very gravely, and perhaps absurdly, what are no doubt elementary commonplaces for innumerable people. This love that grew up between Beatrice and myself was, I think, I put it quite tentatively and rather curiously, romantic love. That unfortunate and truncated affair of my uncle and the Scrimgore lady was really of the same stuff, if a little different in quality. I have to admit that. The factor of audience was of primary importance in either else. Its effect upon me was to make me in many respects adolescent again. It made me keener upon the point of honor, and anxious and eager to do high and splendid things, and in particular brave things. So far it ennobled and upheld me, but it did also push me towards vulgar and showy things. At bottom it was disingenuous. It gave my life the quality of state scenery, with one side to the audience, another side that wasn't meant to show, and an economy of substance. It certainly robbed my work of high patience and quality. I cut down the toil of research in my eagerness, and her eagerness for fine flourishes in the air, flights that would tell. I shirked the longer road. And it robbed me, too, of any fine perception of absurdity. Yet that was not everything in our relationship. The elemental thing was there also. It came in very suddenly. It was one day in the summer, though I do not now recall without reference to my experimental memoranda whether it was in July or August. I was working with a new and more bird-like aeroplane with wing curvatures studied from Lilienthal, Pilcher, and Phillips that I thought would give a different rhythm for the pitching oscillations than anything I'd had before. I was soaring my long course from the framework on the old barrow by my sheds down to Tinker's Corner. It is a clear stretch of downland, except for two or three th thickets of box and thorn to the right of my course. One transverse trough, in which there is bush and a small rabbit warren, comes in from the east. I had started, and was very intent on the peculiar long swoop with which any new arrangement flew. Then, without any sort of notice, right ahead of me appeared Beatrice, riding towards Tinker's Corner to waylay and talk to me. She looked round over her shoulder, saw me coming, touched her horse to a gallop, and then the brute bolted right into the path of my machine. There was a queer moment of doubt whether we shouldn't all smash together. I had to make up my mind very quickly whether I would pitch up and drop backward at once and take my chance of falling 
undamaged, a poor chance it would have been, in order to avoid any risk to her, or whether I would lift against the wind and soar right over her. This latter I did. She had already got her horse in hand when I came up to her. Her woman's body lay along his neck, and she glanced up as I, with wings spread and every nerve in a state of tension, swept over her. Then I had landed, and was going back to where her horse stood still and trembling. We exchanged no greetings. She slid from her saddle into my arms, and for one instant I held her. "'Those great wings,' she said, and that was all. She lay in my arms, and I thought for a moment she had fainted. "'Very near a nasty accident,' said Cothope, coming up and regarding our grouping with disfavor. He took her horse by the bridle. "'Very dangerous thing coming across us like that.' Beatrice disengaged herself from me, stood for a moment trembling, and then sat down on the turf. "'I'll just sit down for a moment,' she said. "'Oh,' she said. She covered her face with her hands, while Cothope looked at her with an expression between suspicion and impatience. For some moments nobody moved. Then Cothope remarked that perhaps we'd better get her water. As for me, I was filled with a new outrageous idea, begotten I scarcely know how from this incident, with its instant contacts and swift emotions, and that was that I must make love to and possess Beatrice. I see no particular reason why that thought should have come to me in that instant, but it did. I do not believe that before then I had thought of our relationship in such terms at all. Suddenly, as I remember it, the factor of passion came. She crouched there, and I stood over her, and neither of us said a word, but it was just as though something had been shouted from the sky. Cothope had gone twenty paces, perhaps, when she uncovered her face. "'I shan't want any water,' she said. "'Call him back.' 6. After that, the spirit of our relations changed. The old ease had gone. She came to me less frequently, and when she came, she would have someone with her, usually old Carnaby, and he would do the bulk of the talking. All through September she was away. When we were alone together, there was a curious constraint, we became clouds of inexpressible feeling towards one another we could think of nothing that was not too momentous for words then came the smash of lord roberts a and i found myself with a bandaged face in a bedroom in the bedley corner dower house with beatrice presiding over an inefficient nurse lady osprey very pink and shocked in the background and my aunt jealously intervening my injuries were much more showy than serious, and I could have been taken to Lady Grove next day, but Beatrice would not permit that, and kept me at Bedley Corner three clear days. In the afternoon of the second day, she became extremely solicitous for the proper aeration of the nurse, packed her off for an hour in a brisk rain, and sat by me alone. I asked her to marry me. All the whole, I must admit, it was not a situation that lent itself to eloquence. I lay on my back and talked through bandages, and with some little difficulty, for my tongue and mouth had swollen. But I was feverish and in pain, and the emotional suspense I had been in so long with regard to her became now an unendurable impatience. Comfortable? she asked. Yes. Shall I read to you? No. I want to talk. You can't. I'd better talk to you. 
No, I said, I want to talk to you. She came and stood by my bedside and looked me in the eyes. I don't, I don't want you to talk to me, she said. I thought you couldn't talk. I get few chances of you. You'd better not talk. Don't talk now. Let me chatter instead. You ought not to talk. It isn't much, I said. I'd rather you didn't. I'm not going to be disfigured, I said, only a scar. Oh, she said, as if she had expected something quite different. Did you think you'd become a sort of gargoyle? L'homme qui rit, I didn't know. But that's all right. Jolly flowers those are. Michaelmas daisies, she said. I'm glad you're not disfigured, and those are perennial sunflowers. Do you know no flowers at all? When I saw you on the ground, I certainly thought you were dead. You ought to have been, by all the rules of the game. She said some other things, but I was thinking of my next move. Are we social equals? I said abruptly. She stared at me. Queer question, she said. But are we? Hmm, difficult to say. But why do you ask? Is the daughter of a courtesy baron who died of general disreputableness, I believe, before his father? I give it up. Does it matter? No, my mind is confused. I want to know if you will marry me. She whitened and said nothing. I suddenly felt I must plead with her. Damn these bandages, I said, breaking into ineffectual febrile rage. She roused herself to her duties as nurse. What are you doing? Why are you trying to sit up? Sit down. Don't touch your bandages. I told you not to talk. She stood helpless for a moment, then took me firmly by the shoulders and pushed me back upon the pillow. She gripped the wrist of the hand I had raised to my face. I told you not to talk, she whispered close to my face. I asked you not to talk. Why couldn't you do as I asked you? You've been avoiding me for a month, I said. I know. You might have known. Put your hand back, down by your side. I obeyed. She sat on the edge of the bed. A flush had come to her cheeks, and her eyes were very bright. I asked you, she repeated, not to talk. My eyes questioned her mutely. She put her hand on my chest. Her eyes were tormented. How can I answer you now, she said. How can I say anything now? What do you mean? I asked. She made no answer. Do you mean it must be no? She nodded. But, I said, and my whole soul was full of accusations. I know, she said. I can't explain. I can't. But it has to be no. It can't be. It's utterly, finally, forever impossible. Keep your hand still. But, I said, when we met again... I can't marry. I can't and won't. She stood up. Why did you talk? She cried. Couldn't you see? She seemed to have something it was impossible to say. She came to the table beside my bed and pulled the Michaelmas daisies away. Why did you talk like that? She said in a tone of infinite bitterness. To begin like that. But what is it? I said. Is it some circumstance? My social position? Oh, damn your social position, she cried. She went and stood at the further window, staring out at the rain. For a long time we were absolutely still. 
the wind and rain came in little gusts upon the pane. She turned to me abruptly. "'You didn't ask me if I loved you,' she said. "'Oh, if it's that,' said I. "'It's not that,' she said. "'But if you want to know,' she paused. "'I do,' she said. We stared at one another. "'I do, with all my heart, if you want to know.' "'Then why the devil?' I asked. She made no answer. She walked across the room to the piano and began to play, rather noisily and rapidly, with odd gusts of emphasis, the shepherd's pipe music from the last act in Tristan and Isolde. Presently she missed a note, failed again, ran her finger heavily up the scale, struck the piano passionately with her fist, making a feeble jar in the treble, jumped up, and went out of the room. The nurse found me still wearing my helmet of bandages, partially dressed and pottering around the room to find the rest of my clothes. I was in a state of exasperated hunger for Beatrice, and I was too inflamed and weakened to conceal the state of my mind. I was feebly angry because of the irritation of dressing, and particularly of the struggle to put on my trousers without being able to see my legs. I was staggering about, and once I had fallen over a chair, and I had upset the jar of Michaelmas daisies. I must have been a detestable spectacle. I'll go back to bed, said I, if I may have a word with Miss Beatrice. I've got something to say to her. That's why I'm dressing. My point was conceded, but there were long delays. Whether the household had my ultimatum, or whether she told Beatrice directly, I do not know. And what Lady Osprey could have made of it, in the former case, I don't imagine. At last... Beatrice came and stood by my bedside. Well, she said. All I want to say, I said, with the querulous note of a misunderstood child, is that I can't take this as final. I want to see you, and talk when I'm better, and write. I can't do anything now. I can't argue. I was overtaken with self-pity, and began to snivel. I can't rest, you see. I can't do anything. She sat down beside me again and spoke softly. I promise I will talk it all over with you again, when you are well. I promise. I will meet you somewhere so that we can talk. You can't talk now. I asked you not to talk now. All you want to know, you shall know. Will that do? I'd like to know. She looked round to see the door was closed, stood up, and went to it. Then she crouched beside me and began whispering very softly and rapidly with her face close to me. "'Dear,' she said, "'I love you. If it will make you happy to marry me, I will marry you. I was in a mood just now, a stupid, inconsiderate mood. Of course I will marry you. You are my prince, my king. Women are such things of mood, or I would have behaved differently. We say no.' when we mean yes, and fly into crises. So now, yes, 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 I will. I can't even kiss you. Give me your hand to kiss that. Understand, I am yours. Do you understand? I am yours, just as if we had been married fifty years. Your wife, Beatrice. Is that enough? Now, now, will you rest? Yes, I said. But why? There are complications. There are difficulties. When you are better, you will be able to 
understand them. But now they don't matter. Only you know this must be secret, for a time, absolutely secret between us. Will you promise that? Yes, I said. I understand. I wish I could kiss you. She laid her head down beside mine for a moment, and then she kissed my hand. I don't care what difficulties there are, I said, and I shut my eyes. 7. But I was only beginning to gauge the unaccountable elements in Beatrice. For a week after my return to Lady Grove, I had no sign of her, and then she called with Lady Osprey and brought a huge bunch of perennial sunflowers and Michaelmas daisies. Just the old flowers there were in your room, said my aunt, with a relentless eye on me. I didn't get any talk alone with Beatrice then, and she took occasion to tell us she was going to London for some indefinite number of weeks. I couldn't even pledge her to write to me, and when she did, it was a brief, enigmatical, friendly letter with not a word of the reality between us. I wrote back a love letter, my first love letter, and she made no reply for eight days. Then came a scrawl. I can't write letters. Wait till we can talk. Are you better? I think the reader would be amused if he could see the papers on my desk as I write all this, the mangled and disfigured pages, the experimental arrangements of notes, the sheets of suggestions balanced in constellations, the blottesque intellectual battlegrounds over which I have been fighting. I find this account of my relations to Beatrice quite the most difficult part of my story to write. I happen to be a very objective-minded person. I forget my moods, and this was so much an affair of moods. And even such moods and emotions as I recall are very difficult to convey. To me, it is about as difficult as describing a taste or a scent. Then the objective story is made up of little things that are difficult to set in a proper order. And love in an hysterical passion, now high, now low, now exalted, and now intensely physical. No one has ever yet dared to tell a love story completely. Its alternations, its comings and goings, its debased moments, its hate. The love stories we tell tell only the net consequence, the ruling effect. How can I rescue from the past now the mystical quality of Beatrice, my intense longing for her, the overwhelming, irrational, formless desire? How can I explain how intimately that worship mingled with a high, impatient resolve to make her mine, to take her by strength and courage, to do my loving in a violent, heroic manner? And then the doubts, the puzzled arrest at the fact of her fluctuations, at her refusal to marry me, at the fact that even when at last she returned to Bedley Corner, she seemed to evade me. That exasperated me and perplexed me beyond measure. I felt that it was treachery. I thought of every conceivable explanation, and the most exalted and romantic confidence in her did not simply alternate, but mingled with the basest misgivings. And into the tangle of memories comes a figure of Carnaby, coming out slowly from the background to a position of significance, as an influence, as a predominant strand in the nets that kept us apart, as a rival. What were the forces that pulled her away from me when it was so clearly manifest she loved me? Did she think of marrying him? Had I invaded some long-planned scheme? It was evident he did not like me, that in some way I spoiled the world for him. 
she returned to Bedley Corner, and for some weeks she was flitting about me, and never once could I have talked with her alone. When she came to my sheds, Carnaby was always with her, jealously observant. Why the devil couldn't she send him about his business? The days slipped by, and my anger gathered. All this mingles with the makings of Lord Roberts B. I had resolved upon that one night, as I lay awake at Bedley Corner. I got it planned out before the bandages were off my face. I conceived this second navigable balloon in a grandiose manner. It was to be a second Lord Roberts A., only more so. It was to be three times as big large enough to carry three men, and it was to be an altogether triumphant vindication of my claims upon the air. The framework was to be hollow like a bird's bones, airtight, and the air pumped in or out, and the weight of fuel I carried changed. I talked much and boasted to Cothope, whom I suspected of skepticisms about this new type, of what it would do, and it progressed slowly. It progressed slowly, because I was restless and uncertain. At times I would go away to London, to snatch some chance of seeing Beatrice there. At times nothing but a day of gliding, and hard, and dangerous exercise would satisfy me. And now, in the newspapers, in conversation, in everything about me, arose a new invader of my mental states. Something was happening to the great schemes of my uncle's affairs. People were beginning to doubt, to question. It was the first quiver of his tremendous insecurity, the first wobble of that gigantic credit top he had kept spinning so long. There were comings and goings. November and December slipped by. I had two unsatisfactory meetings with Beatrice, meetings that had no privacy, in which we said things of the sort that need atmosphere, baldy and furtively. I wrote to her several times, and she wrote back notes that I would sometimes respond to altogether, sometimes condemn as insincere evasions. You don't understand. I can't just now explain. Be patient with me. Leave things a little while to me, she wrote. I would talk aloud to these notes and wrangle over them in my workroom, while the plans of Lord Roberts B. waited. You don't give me a chance, I would say. Why don't you let me know the secret? That's what I'm for, to settle difficulties, to tell difficulties too. And at last I could hold out no longer against these accumulating pressures. I took an arrogant, outrageous line that left her no loopholes. I behaved as though we were living in a melodrama. You must come and talk to me, I wrote, or I will come and take you. I want you, and the time runs away. We met in a ride in the upper plantations. It must have been early in January, for there was snow on the ground and on the branches of the trees. We walked to and fro for an hour or more, and from the first I pitched the key high in romance and made understandings impossible. It was our worst time together. I boasted like an actor, and she, I know not why, was tired and spiritless. Now I think over that talk in the light of all that has happened since. I can imagine how she came to me full of a human appeal I was too foolish to let her make. I don't know. I confess I have never completely understood Beatrice. I confess I am still perplexed at many things she said and did. That afternoon, anyhow, I was impossible. I posed and scolded. I was, I said it, for taking the universe by the throat. 
If it was only that, she said, but though I heard, I did not heed her. At last she gave way to me and talked no more. Instead, she looked at me, as a thing beyond her controlling, but none the less interesting, much as she had looked at me from behind the skirts of Lady Drew in the Warren when we were children together. Once, even I thought, she smiled faintly. "'What are the difficulties?' I cried. "'There's no difficulty I will not overcome for you. "'Do your people think I'm no equal for you? "'Who says it? "'My dear, tell me to win a title. "'I'll do it in five years. "'Here am I, just grown a man at the sight of you. "'I have wanted something to fight for. "'Let me fight for you. "'I'm rich without intending it. "'Let me mean it. "'Give me an honorable excuse for it, "'and I'll put all this rotten old warren of England at your feet.' I said such things as that. I write them down here in all their resounding base pride. I said these empty and foolish things, and they are part of me. Why should I still cling to pride and be ashamed? I shouted her down. I passed from much melogomania to petty accusations. You think Carnaby is a better man than I? I said. No, she cried, stung to speech. No! You think we're unsubstantial? You've listened to all these rumors. Bloom has started, because we talked of a newspaper of our own. When you are with me, you know I'm a man. When you get away from me, you think I'm a cheat and a cad. There's not a word of truth in the things they say about us. I've been slack. I've left things. But we have only to exert ourselves. You do not know how wide and far we have spread our nets. Even now we have a coup, an expedition in hand. It will put us on a footing. Her eyes asked mutely, and asked in vain, that I would cease to boast of the very qualities she admired in me. In the night I could not sleep for thinking of that talk and the vulgar things I had said in it. I could not understand the drift my mind had taken. I was acutely disgusted and my unwanted doubts about myself spread from a merely personal discontent to our financial position. It was all very well to talk, as I had done of wealth and power and peerages, but what did I know nowadays of my uncle's position? Suppose in the midst of such boasting and confidence there came upon some turn I did not suspect, some rottenness he had concealed from me. I resolved I had been playing with aeronautics long enough that next morning I would go to him and have things clear between us. I caught an early train and went up to the Hardingham. I went up to the Hardingham through a dense London fog to see how things really stood. Before I had talked to my uncle for ten minutes, I felt like a man who has just awakened in a bleak, inhospitable room out of a grandiose dream. End of Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts Four to Seven Recording by William Tomko